1: Hi everyone, it's Steph, Buildup's Executive Portfolio Liaison. This week on the Nonprofit Buildup, we are bringing to you an information-packed session led by BuildUp CEO and Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors, RPA, General Counsel, A. Nicole Campbell, and moderated by RPA Senior Vice President and Corporate Secretary, Renee Caribbe-White. This presentation was originally recorded as a webinar in March 2022. It is the first part of a two-part series. TCLF serves as outsourced general counsel to brave nonprofits and philanthropies, and RPA is one of our brave clients. RPA is a nonprofit organization that currently advises on and manages more than 400 million in annual giving by individuals, families, corporations and foundations, whose mission is to help donors create thoughtful, effective philanthropy throughout the world. In this episode, Nick and Renee address the long-held belief that 501C3s can't advocate through lobbying spoiler alert, they can. They also provide guidance on how to support and structure grants to projects and programs containing advocacy, form successful partnerships within organizations engaged in advocacy, engage in grant making to for-profit and non-profit organizations engaged in advocacy. And with that, here's part one of navigating grants supporting advocacy to C3 and C4
2: organizations. Now, I am thrilled to have with us today, Nick Campbell. She is the general counsel of RPA. And Nick came to us with 15 years of experience in the philanthropic sector. She worked as foundation counsel for Dalio Philanthropies, and she was also deputy general counsel for Open Society Foundations. And in addition to working with RPA as our general counsel, she is the managing partner of the Campbell Law Firm as well as president of Build Up, which is a nonprofit capacity builder for specifically people of color. So welcome, Nick. Now, before we get started, Nick, so many organizations on this call do advocacy as a huge part of their charitable work. Lobbying is just one component of this. Why is today's conversation important for nonprofits and private foundations?
0: Yes, thanks so much, Renee. So it's really important because we know that advocacy is a very critical tool used by charitable organizations around the globe. And as you mentioned, lobbying is just one part of advocacy. Um, There's lots of different types of advocacy that we'll talk about. But if you don't know what the rules are around lobbying for charitable organizations, particularly within the United States, I think then restricts how creative you can be within your advocacy and how effective you actually can be. So understanding what you can do, what you can't do, what you can do as a public charity, what you can do as a private foundation is really helpful as you make grants, as you fund activities, and you really try to use the advocacy tool effectively.
2: So what are the rules that, is that, that set the framework for this? Like, why is it that you can do certain things or not do certain things. I think a lot of people on the call are probably familiar with this, but just so we set the groundwork and get everyone up to speed. So when
0: we talk about charitable organizations, we're really talking about 501c3, section 501c3 of the U.S. tax code. So you hear 501c3 organizations, but we're talking about charitable organizations and all of the regulations that come from that section as well. And so there are different rules for... uh, different types of charitable organizations that we'll talk about. But this is really where charitable organizations can say, this is what I can do, and this is what I can't do. We also are going to be talking about private foundations, right? Another type of charitable organization, uh similar to the, the public charity in that way. When you look at, and this is dropping down to the third part here, 40, section 4945 of the code, this really addresses the things that private foundations get taxed on, like what we consider to be taxable expenditures. And so lobbying is part of those taxable expenditures. And so all of the rules and regulations that come from that section also apply here. And then we're talking about 51 c 4 because as we'll discuss, charitable organizations like public charities have a limit as to how much lobbying they can actually engage in. At some point, if you want to do even more advocacy or uh, additional lobbying, you might consider working with or partnering with a 501c4. And so the 501c4 has different rules around lobbying that we'll touch on as well. And so when we think about the framing of the conversation and the rules that apply, we're really talking about these.
2: So what is the biggest risk? So we talked a little bit about there's a taxing issue, right, that foundations might have to deal with. What are some other risks that happen if they go astray of these rules?
0: So, you know, we definitely have the reputational issues that might come about because now what you're signaling is that you are not compliant with the rules that are governing charitable organizations. But it's also fines that are at stake, penalties that are at stake. And so when a charity engages in a lobbying expenditure, it could be an excessive lobbying expenditure if we're talking about public charities, or it can just be the fact that you have now engaged in lobbying as a private foundation, you are... Subject to different penalties. And so those are financial penalties that can be aimed at the organization itself, but also on any manager that's you know, including officers, directors, folks who knowingly, willingly engage in those kinds of transactions as well. They also face penalties. And then the ultimate penalty, which is, you know, loss of task exempt status. If you're doing this repeatedly and, you know, repeatedly is usually more than twice. And so if you're engaging in lobbying expenditures uh, repeatedly, you could ultimately lose your tax-exempt status, which means that you would not be around as an organization anymore. You wouldn't be able to fund organizations and individuals around the globe in terms of advocacy or effect change. And so no one wants that result. And so that's why we really want to make sure that we are not hit with penalties. We're not losing our tax-exempt status. And we know how to engage within advocacy in terms of lobbying and what we can and cannot do.
2: Do you have a sense of where these risks come from? Like, is it typically whistleblowers? Is it an organization that might be on another side of a particular issue? Like, how do these tend to surface?
0: Yeah, I think it's all of the above. It's really based on the kind of work that you're doing. So if you are engaged in very high profile, very visible work, then you are making yourself very known, right? The work that you're doing. And then you obviously have supporters for that work, but you can also have folks that are that don't agree with what you're doing. And so they're looking for anything. They're looking for, you know, the media announcements about your work and saying, wait a minute, I thought again, maybe they don't know the rules and they say, Well, I thought that charities couldn't lobby. And so they raise their hands and they say, I'm going to go to the IRS. I'm going to ask them to audit this organization. And audits can really start from just you know a phone call, a letter. And so it can come from anywhere. And so you want to make sure that you are complying with the rules. And so when an audit comes up or an examination comes up from the IRS, you are prepared to say, I have followed, not only do I understand the rules, but I have followed them. I'm compliant. And what we're doing is within the different frameworks, the legal framework that we we started this conversation with.
2: Now, do there tend to be cycles in enforcement, for example, where for an election year, if it's a major election or a minor election, does the enforcement seem to ramp up at certain times? I
0: think that's right. It's definitely, you know, election years, we want, I think the the antenna go up a lot more for the mm-hmm. IRS. I also think that we think about it on the state level as well. And I think that that depending on the state that you're in, you might have the Attorney General being very active or the Charities Bureau within the state being very active and asking questions. And again, having someone just raise their hand and say, I think this, this charity is engaged in work that it shouldn't be, or I don't think that they're disclosing what they should. Those kinds of inquiries can really launch investigations and examinations pretty quickly. And I do think that they increase in in election years.
2: Okay, great. So now let's get into the rules a little bit more specifically now. And if anyone has a question, feel free to put it in the Q&A. We'll make sure to monitor it and try to ask as many during the session as we can. Okay.
0: So we've started talking about charitable organizations. And- the first bullet is really talking about the fact that no charitable organization can get that status if a substantial part of what they're doing is attempting to influence legislation or lobbying, right? And that's just the bottom line. We we're talking about charitable organizations and how they're set up and um, their status. They cannot engage in a substantial amount of lobbying, right? Now that breaks on even further because we're talking about charitable organizations. There are two types. Public charities and private foundations. And with public charities, they can engage in, in lobbying. Just, it has to be an insubstantial amount of lobbying activities, right? So you might hear folks say charities can't lobby. They're not supposed to lobby. And that's actually not true. Public charities can lobby. It's just up to a certain amount of lobbying that they can do. And we'll talk about each of these um, different ways to measure how much lobbying you're doing as a public charity. The first is a default, the no substantial part test. It's back to that first point that if you want to be a charitable organization, you cannot engage in a substantial amount of lobbying. And so even if you do nothing else, that is the default quote test that you use to say, okay, you can be a charitable organization and this is the amount of lobbying you can do for the next is the H election. And again, we'll talk about this in a little more detail. It does get very technical, but you can then say, I think that substantial part test is a little bit, uh, it feels like I'm guessing. I don't have a lot of certainty around it. And so I want numbers. I want to know how much uh, expenditures I could actually do when it comes to lobbying. And so I'm going to take what is called the each election, and so that's just giving you real clarity as to this is the amount of lobbying that you can do given um, the amount of expenditures that you make on an annual basis, and so that's for public charities. For private foundations, on the other hand, they are completely prohibited from engaging in or funding lobbying activities. And we'll talk about well, then how do they make grants to public charities that might be lobbying or other organizations that lobby? What does that look like? But know that private foundations as a default rule, general rule, they are absolutely prohibited from engaging in lobbying. That means there's no de minimis exception. So it's not as though you say, well, it's only $5, it's only a dollar. It doesn't matter. That rule
2: is, is an absolute prohibition. So just to clarify, the public charities you're talking about here are the 501c3 charities. What about, we mentioned 501c4 charities. How would you differentiate those?
0: So when we talk about nonprofits, 501c3 organizations are nonprofits. 501c4 organizations are also nonprofits. But that nonprofit umbrella term then breaks down into charitable organizations. And that's when we're talking about public charities and private foundations. And then we're also talking about social welfare organizations, which are 501c4 organizations. And so 501c4 organizations don't have these lobbying limitations. They can lobby to any extent that they would like. They don't have this substantial part, no substantial part limitation. They don't have to take an H election to get a certain number. They can use all of their funds if they would like in terms of lobbying. And so you'll see a lot of public charities or uh, 501C3 organizations, have affiliated C4 organizations when they realize we have a lot of tools in our advocacy toolkit, so to speak, and we want to do more on the lobbying side, that's when they step into this 501C4 vehicle, which has unlimited
2: lobbying ability. Great. And then you have some information on the types of activities that are included.
0: Yes. So the point of this slide is really to say, it's not just about grants. So a lot of times we'll hear, well, it's not a grant or we're really just focus on grant making and trying to understand how much of the grant itself is lobbying, but it's everything. It's all of the organization's activities that we're looking at. It's what your employees are doing. It's definitely what your grantees are engaged in, but it's your consultants as well, your vendors. And so whatever language you put into your grant agreement, if you're concerned about lobbying or you have um, sort of restrictions on lobbying, you want to make sure they're also showing up in your consulting agreements, particularly when you're making agreements with um, for-profit organizations, for example, or individuals who may not be familiar with these restrictions that
2: apply to charitable organizations. Great. So we have a lot of questions about the difference between advocacy and lobbying. So now that we've laid the groundwork, can you go a little bit more into the details around what lobbying is and how it's defined? Yes. So talked a lot
0: around and you wanted to set this tone and the framing for it. But when we say lobbying, what do we mean? Lobbying is a word that's used, you know, just generally to say, you know, this person is lobbying on the Hill, if we're talking about the United States, for example. But when we are talking about lobbying, we're talking about a very specific definition that exists under the U.S. tax code. And how that definition is used is that lobbying is seen as certain efforts to influence legislation. That's it. Right. Certain efforts to influence like legislation. So your question or your, your thought should be, okay, well, if there is no legislation, then we don't have lobbying. And that's exactly right. The question that comes up though is, what is legislation? What does that mean for this, this tax code definition of lobbying? And so when we say legislation, we're talking about all of these bullets here, right? We're talking about statutes and I'll pull out a couple because I think sometimes they get glossed over or forgotten about as legislation for these purposes. Legislative confirmations, they're seen as legislation for these purposes. So if you start to say, this is how this, uh, how the, the committee should vote, um, you're sharing information, you're reflecting a view, you're doing all those things. That is seen as it may be seen as lobbying because you have legislation in play um, budget appropriations you're talking about um, a legislative body taking on um, certain amounts of funding for spends or allocating funding for different budget line items that's all part of lobbying because the budget appropriations would be seen as legislation and then you have ballot initiatives and referenda that we'll talk about in just a second, but we also see those as legislation now one thing that I want to pull out here is that It includes, and this is the beginning of that section, it includes federal, state, local, and non-US, which means it is everywhere in the world, and it is at every level of government. So it's not just the federal government within the United States. It also applies outside of the United States and in different levels of government. And we'll talk through which uh, members of government we'll be talking about, but know that it's just not restricted to the United States. And there's two types. Only two types, direct
2: lobbying and grassroots lobbying, which we'll talk about. So a question here is someone, the question is, I'll quote it. Someone told me once that a nonprofit can do everything short of saying vote for X. Is that a good way to think about it? And I know what your answer is going to be, but I'd like to hear it. So we'll talk this through, because there are some exceptions where you'll
0: see that doesn't always hold true. I think what we want to understand or think about when we're thinking about lobbying is just asking some really key questions. Do we have legislation in play, right? Who are we talking to? And depending on the audience, do you have, and we'll talk about this in grassroots lobbying, but do you have a call to action, right? So when you start to think about lobbying, is this lobbying, is it not? Think about those three things. Do we have legislation? Like Who are we talking to? And do we have an additional act to do if we're talking to the general public. And I think that that framing will help as opposed to we can basically come right up to that quote line of do everything except say vote for X, because I think that there's lots of things along the way that may constitute lobbying, even before you get to vote for XYZ. And we'll talk about that too. So the first type that we wanted to focus on is direct lobbying. What is it? It is a communication With a legislator, a legislative staff member, or any government official that's, quote, participating in the legislative process, you have to be talking with someone who has some decision-making power in the legislative process, right? That's, without that, you do not have, you're not really engaged in direct lobbying. We'll talk about um, some exceptions that might come up, but really you are talking about someone who has a decision-making ability within that legislative process. The next thing you have to do is you refer to and you reflect a view on specific legislation or a specific legislative proposal. Now, when we get into that specific legislative proposal, it's like, well, what do we mean? What are we talking about? You have to provide sufficient information that allows your audience to identify a bill or some other proposal that's being made when you're talking with them, right? So it doesn't have to be an actual pending bill. It could be a proposal that's based on existing law, but it's so clear to the person, that this legislative member that you're talking to, that it is clearly a proposal based on existing legislation that they can act on. And so that's when you have all of those elements, you are in direct lobbying. What I wanna pull out is that direct lobbying is not all government officials. So, what I hear a lot is well, Nick I'll you know we'll be talking to members of the government, and so and we'll be talking about this particular legislation, so we're going to be engaged in direct lobbying, and that's not necessarily true; it depends on who you're talking to so again, if you are talking to someone in an executive in the executive branch where they're not a member of the legislative body, they are not involved in the legislative process then you're not going to be seen as being engaged in direct lobbying because you need to have that member of a legislative body in order to be seen as engaged in that kind of lobbying. The other piece is litigation. Right. So litigation can be a form of advocacy where you're bringing suits to for around different causes or uh, around different laws. Right. You could actually be saying this law should be repealed, should whatever statement or position you're taking on it, whatever you do through litigation is not going to be seen as lobbying. And you're just because you're engaged with the judicial branch doesn't mean that you're engaged
2: in direct lobbying. And in addition to direct lobbying, there's also lobbying with the public, correct?
0: Yes. And so that kind of lobbying is grassroots lobbying, right? And so just like direct lobbying, um, we have remember, a member of communication with a member of legislative body. Here you have communication with the general public. So everybody else who is not a member of that legislative body or participating in that legislative process. You have to do the same thing, refer to and reflect a view on a legislation or a legislative proposal. And The difference between, you know, grassroots lobbying and direct lobbying, in addition to like who you're talking to, because of who you're talking to, you have to include a call to action. And what is that? It's basically saying, I've told you about this legislation. I've reflected my view on it. And now I need you to go out and contact. You're a member of your legislative body to tell them to vote yes or no or to do a particular act. Right. As part of that legislative process. So you need to call the general public to act in order to be engaged in grassroots lobbying generally. And so these are just some examples of what a call to action can look like. It's not always that explicit statement saying, now go out and contact your legislator to vote yes or no. The IRS, uh, the Internal Revenue Service, says, look, we can actually infer that you were doing, you were intending to make a call to action here, right? And that's what the other bullets imply. So don't think that just because you don't have that explicit statement that you may not be seen as you know putting out a call
2: to action. Thanks, Nick. I have a question that goes back to the executive branch. So the example someone raised is whether appropriations include how a governor might allocate funds using executive authority versus a state legislature decision.
0: I think it's a good question. I think some of these may require additional facts for us to get right into like whether or not that specific case is lobbying or not but i will say if you are dealing with you know budget appropriations within a for a legislative body where they're making the decision as to how to allocate funds that's going to be seen as direct lobbying when you're dealing with the executive branch it depends if that executive branch is part of a legislative process, they're part of that budget appropriations process as you know, just a normal course of business, then it may be seen that you are influencing a member who is part of that legislative process, right? That budget appropriations process. So we can't necessarily say no at all times. Even if you're talking to an executive branch member, it will never be seen as direct lobbying because we need to understand the role that they play within that overall budget appropriations process.
2: Okay. Now, you mentioned earlier that there are three elements, the legislation in play, who we're talking to, and a call to action. Are there any scenarios where a call to action is not required?
0: Yes. So, remember we talked about ballot initiatives and referenda, that they would count as legislation. We're talking about, are we engaged in lobbying? They're special cases, because within a ballot initiative or a referendum, you have the general public that is actually acting, right? They're the ones that are making that decision. There is no legislative body outside of the general public. So in that case, you might say, well, I just heard that grassroots lobbying requires a CTA or a call to action. And I just need to reflect a view. I have a specific legislation, but I'm not telling them to do anything. So I, I'm fine. Just because you're talking to the general public here in the context of a ballot initiative or a referendum, it actually shifts into direct lobbying because here the general public is standing in as that legislative body. So there's no call to action required because... They are the legislative body here, right? You're talking directly to them. And so when you refer to the legislation reflective view, then you're doing the same thing as being engaged in direct lobbying in that case. So we wanted to pull that out because ballot initiatives and referenda come up a lot. And just know that just because you are engaging with the general public at that point doesn't mean that you need a call to action in that case. Another exception that I wanted to talk about is the paid mass media ad. Exception. So a lot of this used to come up in the nineties and maybe even the early 2000s around billboards in particular, but it's really, you know, billboards, television ads, radio ads, magazine ads. And what happens is if there's a highly publicized legislation that's pending before a legislative body where highly publicized is pretty much the average person in the general public knows that the legislation is pending and you have an ad that appears within two weeks of a legislative vote. And you either reflect a view and refer to the legislation or you encourage the public to communicate with legislators just on the general subject of the legislation. You're not saying go out and explicitly call your senator and tell them to vote yes on this particular bill, for example. But if you just have those things, so there's no real call to action, you're going to be seen as being engaged in lobbying because again, the position is that it is just so obvious that what you're doing is telling them to do something, a call to action is not required in that instance either. And that concludes part one of the series.
1: Next week, Nick and Renee will discuss what types of activities do not constitute lobbying and so much more. Additionally, if you're interested in partnering with a law firm that leverages a global network of experienced attorneys with decades of legal training and practical experience and focuses on social impact organizations to serve as an outsourced general counsel and thought partner, then schedule a discovery call with the Campbell Law Firm today. The Campbell Law Firm works with brave nonprofits, philanthropists, ultra high net worth individuals and movements offering high touch counsel to social impact entrepreneurs and organizations around the world. We would love to hear more about your brave mission to change the world.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of nonprofit buildup to access the show notes, additional resources and information on how you can work with us. Please visit our website at buildupadvisory.com. We invite you to listen again next week as we share another episode about scaling impact by building infrastructure and capacity in the nonprofit sector. Keep building bravely.